for a few weeks at least. Um, And with that being said, you can turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 10 to continue this study with us. Now one thing we noticed in our preparation for tonight is that Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is much more similar to Proverbs than it is to the previous chapters of this text. And it's worth mentioning that over in Proverbs, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 9, we're told that besides being wise, the preacher, that is the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. So even the book of Ecclesiastes acknowledges that its author is someone who writes a lot of Proverbs. And that's worth mentioning as we enter chapter 10 because chapter 10 feels like a series of of proverbial statements. And that's kind of how we have approached this uh, to some degree. And so we're going to begin by looking at verses 1 through 4 and comment on it, and then we'll we'll, uh, continue on from there. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. I'm going to ask, Jay, will you get us started tonight with your thoughts on these first four verses? I think it's important as we start to look at chapter 10, verse 1, if we look back to the last verse in chapter 19, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. So I think the idea carried forth from the last chapter into this one is even though something might be small in size or small in number, it can have a large effect on the group as a whole or, or the whole of your life or whatever it may be. And we see examples of this throughout the scripture. I think you know one of the first ones being um, Moses with striking out the rock. Even though his anger there might be small in comparison to his obedience to God or small in comp- comparison to his loyalty to God, this one character flaw of his really came out and hurt him in that moment as they're at the, you know, the doorsteps of the promised land, but this one aspect of maybe his character that he had refused to eradicate from his life held him back. And I think about Esau giving away his birthright to that bowl of soup, something that was small right there but had a large effect, obviously, on his life and the rest of his generations, but just one small thing. And so I think we can take, take that to heart in our lives by simply looking at the effect one sin has had on our, in the past in your life. I think we all can look back to you know, maybe the past couple years, or the past however it may be, where one decision had a large effect on your path. Maybe it was a career choice, a relationship choice, wherever it may be. We all can sympathize, we all can realize, we all recognize that whether good, for good or bad, one small decision, one small step, can have a huge impact. And I think this is the, the wisdom that Solomon is trying to get across here is something just like Paul would go along to say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, a little leaven affects a whole lump, right? And so I think that's the idea he's getting across here. And I think we need to take that seriously in ourselves now and say, okay, I've got this one character flaw. I've got this one, you know, I'm doing all this right over here, but this one thing I'm not doing right or this one thing I haven't attended to yet. It, it's really small in comparison. I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not robbing people, but, you know, I'm, I may lie or I may, may gossip or may, I may post something I shouldn't, whatever it may be. That one sin that might be a pocket sin of ours, and though it might be small in size, can have a large impact in our life. A couple other things to note that I saw uh, that was interesting in this passage is the, the mention of the left and the right um, in verse 2, a wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. Now, I think it might be uh, tempting to apply that to today's left and right in a lot of different ways. But we've got to put ourselves in Solomon's shoes and look at the context and culture that he's coming from. And what he's meaning there, why he says why wisdom leads to the right and folly leads, to the, leads you to the left. 
this is a, a mainstay ideology of where wisdom and strength comes from when it comes to the right hand being the stronger hand even. And so this is where this wisdom falls, you know, leans to the strength where folly or you know, lack of wisdom leads you to weakness. So don't, let's not apply our 21st century right and left mentality to this, but leads to strength and weakness to this. It, it, one thing I found studying this is even the, the word in Latin that is the root word for, uh, or the word for sinister or evil means to, to go left. And so I thought that was kind of interesting when we look at where wisdom will lead a person when it comes to right or, or to the left. And the last thing I'll mention before I uh, hand it over is in verse 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. I love that, that, that phrase there, do not abandon your position. When times get difficult, when the road gets a little harder, when, there, when opposition comes down upon your head, when someone maybe above you is looking down upon you in a negative way, don't leave your position. I was reminded of Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30 in that, in that powerful lesson that we, we always, maybe we've all heard from of standing in the gap. When God was looking for one righteous man to stand in the gap and to truly stand up for Jerusalem because he was about to release all this uh, righteous judgment upon them. He says, I'm really just looking for one man that would stand in the gap between my, my righteous anger and the whole nation of, or city of Jerusalem. And he found no one. And then this, this thought here in uh, chapter 10, verse 4, of not abandoning your position. God is actually looking then and now for men and women to not abandon their position, to stand up for what's right and to stand up for others. And so I think we can apply that to today in our lives. Even though COVID was difficult, even though our times might be difficult, God is looking at each and every one of us tonight and, and saying very much, I, I believe, I think a, a similar um, mindset that Solomon here says, do not abandon your, your position because composure brings great offenses. So that's just a few things I took away from the first part. You know, one thing I wanted to talk about was specifically in verse 1 and in regards to the fly and the ointment. Uh, I thought that was an interesting image for us to look at when it comes to our sin and when it comes to our shortcomings to look at them as a fly in the ointment because, you know, even though this chapter we've already discussed doesn't have any thread of common thought all the way throughout, there's no really hermeneutical reason or rhyme for the reasons that he talks about what he talks about. It just seems like, you know, he's running out of some parchment. You know, we said that earlier. And he's trying to get these Proverbs in at the last minute here. But verse 1 specifically means a lot to me, and I hope it means a lot to all of us as we read it tonight. I'm going to read from the New King James. It says, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. You know, it doesn't matter how much honor, how much respect, how much wisdom you may obtain in your life, all of it can be ruined by a couple of dead flies in the ointment. By a couple of dead flies, a couple of sins in the skeletons in the closet, right? And I think about so many examples of church leaders, of uh, celebrities, of politicians who may have done so much good in the course of their life. But some scandal comes out and, and basically invalidates all that they had done, right? Whenever we think about them, we don't think about the good that they did, the, the, the immense great things that they did for the world. We just remember them for that scandal or that fly or those skeletons in the closet. And so it's no different when it comes to each of our individual lives. A few dead flies in our ointment of our life, right, 
can ruin the rest of the good that we have ever done. And Jay mentioned Galatians 5 and verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul would also say that in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 5 through 7. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And that's the case on a congregational basis as well as an individual basis. A little fly in the ointment, a little leaven in the lump will ruin the rest of the good. And the truth is, we can't just sit here tonight and act like there aren't flies in the ointment. You know, when you have flies in the ointment, when you have this putrefying and giving off this foul odor, it's not something you can ignore. It's not something you can still put on and be like, well, this smells just as good as it was the other day. You can't simply ignore it. You can't look over it. You have to address it, and you have to deal with it. It's the same with our sin in our life. When we see that fly in the ointment, when we see that skeleton in the closet, when we see that sin that is so easily ensnaring us, we got to deal with it. We can't just look over it. It's giving off a foul odor, whether we realize it or not. And so when it comes to our life, we have to deal with it. We have to deal with these flies in the ointment. And especially, we need to understand that it's, only, it's not only the public big flies that everybody knows about we need to deal with. It's also those flies that are in secret and in private. Because if you allow me just to skip ahead in our book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 14, Solomon says that the last thing he says in the book is that God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So it doesn't matter if everyone knows about these flies or they don't know. We've got to get it out of the ointment because it's giving off a foul odor. And no matter how much we've been respected, no matter how much wisdom we've gained and how much honor we've gotten, the flies are going to ruin all of it. And so that was a challenge to me as I was studying. I hope it's a challenge to all of us as we look at this proverb in verse 1 there. Um, uh, please allow me to talk about uh, this chapter or this section uh, from a little bit different aspect. Uh, I was wondering this section includes the gospel. But I was not sure. These proverbs, probably the, I mean, if I call it proverbs, these proverbs does not give me the sense that it is, it is talking about the gospel. But it is just talking about the wisdom that we have to have for us to live in this life under the sun better understanding how human lives go in this world. I mean, even if, even if we admit these proverbs are the best wisdom that one can get about the life, about human life, but it doesn't give us the uh, ultimate wisdom for us to have salvation, for us to be saved. Without that was the uh, big question to me. So why? And as I uh, uh, said in the previous uh, session, probably there is two kinds of wisdom that we have to think about while we read this book of Ecclesiastes. For example, chapter 8, verse, the late, uh, last verse and the last sentence, uh, I think it clarifies the idea that even though, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. He is talking about something. I think it is the ultimate wisdom. So even though a wise man like Solomon claims to know, he cannot find it out find the ultimate wisdom yet. And so probably uh, be, uh, on the base of that idea, 
these proverbs are not the ultimate wisdom. These proverbs are a wisdom to lead us to the ultimate wisdom. So what I'm trying to say is that as we read these uh, proverbs or this chapter, something like this, uh, we need to be cautious not to take it as the ultimate wisdom. So I don't think we have to try to our theology, I mean, try to build up our theology on this because we have Father. And that idea leads me to the appreciation of our, uh, our wisdom, I mean, in our generation, because we know the whole truth. After Jesus delivered the whole truth, we know the whole truth. And the gospel is the ultimate truth. But these Proverbs doesn't, probably even Solomon didn't have it when he was writing these uh, this, uh, Proverbs. So he was, at best, he could, I mean, the best thing that he could do for his students or for his listeners was to, you know, uh, to avoid the mistakes or uh, mistakes that foolish people can make in life. But Jesus, our ultimate teacher and the you know, perfect teacher, taught, taught us the full wisdom, the ultimate wisdom. And so, uh, as I thought about that, uh, I could appreciate, you know, how we are blessed because we know the full, whole picture of the plan of gospel, our plan of salvation. Well, that is true that uh, you don't have the complete picture until you uh, get the New Testament. But we do have an inspired author here who is, is speaking um, words of God. And I find it so fascinating. These guys have pointed out, uh, particularly in, in, verse, in these verses, how they relate to some New Testament passages. And for me, verse 4 stood out. For the simple fact that he, he says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. I believe the New American Standard uses the word composure, puts great offenses to rest. I, that idea of, of calmness and composure, I kind of looked up those words to see how many times that, that language is used throughout the Bible, and it's really not. There is one other proverb that is similar to this, and, and this is one reason why I personally think this is a, a proverbial section, is because there's a lot of comparisons between these and in Solomon's writings in the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 15 says, with patience a ruler may be persuaded. There's some similarity there in the fact that that what's being conveyed is when when you're dealing with somebody who you want to listen to you, particularly somebody of, of higher authority, the best thing you can do is remain calm, keep your composure. And with that concept of calmness and composure is the idea of self-control. Because in the context here of verse 4, anger is being arisen towards you, the, the, the communicator. And, and Solomon's saying, stay calm. Stay self-controlled. Don't retaliate. Be patient, that sort of thing. And it makes me think of passages like James chapter 1, verse 19. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. It makes me even think about Jesus' instruction to uh, turn the other cheek in Matthew chapter 5. When you're, when you're taking, um, uh, when somebody's frustration is being taken out on you, instead of retaliating, and, and instead of reciprocating their emotions and their feelings, turn the other cheek. I, I see in this passage in particular a lot of connections to New Testament wisdom that will be conveyed later, like these guys have pointed out, and so on. And, and, and uh, I, f- I find that uh, unique, that a lot of what we're go- what th- wisdom we find in the New Testament does trace itself 
back in some fashion to things that were even said by somebody like Solomon. With that being said, let's turn our attention to the next section to help speed this along a little bit. Starting in verse 5, we'll read through verse 11. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Ben, I'm going to turn to you to get us started on this section. Uh, personal story, uh, growing up on the farm, uh, three boys, we were often asked to go help uh, neighboring people with their trees that had fallen down, or people at church, if they had a little job they needed done, or furniture they needed moved especially, uh, we were asked upon and called upon to go and help and do that. And one of the times was after a major a tornado came through, uh, some of the people at our congregation had trees in their yard and they needed uh, them to be taken care of and, and to be uh, sawn up and, you know, chopped and ready for some fire stoves, you know, just ready to go and put by the court. And so we were called upon to do that for one family. And I had never really chopped wood to that point. Uh, my mom is a very uh, cautious woman, and uh, all the nightmare stories about axes and hitting your leg and stuff, we never dealt with axes. Daddy always had the chainsaw, and we just lifted. So we were actually using the axe for the first time ever, and I was just excited because I just, you know, what guy doesn't want to chop some wood, you know? It's like Rocky, right? I'm the most manly man ever, right? I'm a teenager, chopping some wood, and I am just swinging at this log over and over as hard as I possibly can. And it just will not break. And I just feel like a wimp. And I look over there at my brother, and he's just one slice. One slice chop. One slice chop. And I'm like, all right, he is not that much stronger than me. Third child syndrome, right? So I'm like, I have got to do something about this. Well, it comes to find out that the guy was pulling a prank on me, and he had not sharpened that axe in years while my brother was using the brand new sharpened axe the whole time. But I didn't know that until almost the end of the day. And so I was just working hard as I possibly could, and I was never going to get anywhere. And I just found that very shocking that Solomon knows what that feels like. Here in this passage, verse 9, he says, He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits wood may be endangered by it. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen the edge, then he must use more strength, but wisdom brings success. And so in that moment, I had not experienced what it took to chop wood. I did not know that the axe would be dull. I just thought, well, it's an axe. And boy, I was wrong. And all the strength I had did not do the job. And it's because I had no wisdom in that matter. It's interesting how he says at the end of verse 10, wisdom brings the success. What does it say in your translation? Verse 10? It says, oh, uh, wisdom... Wisdom helps one to succeed. Wisdom helps one to succeed. In many matters of my life, I didn't have that wisdom, so I didn't succeed, right? So that was just an interesting thing as I was studying this passage. And that's, that's what I'll talk about in that section. It is interesting. Solomon did have older brothers. Yeah, he did. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I kind of thought Solomon, verses 5 through 7... And then 8 through 10, or 8 through 11, I feel like on one sense he said, sometimes life doesn't make sense, but these truths always stay, the, always will be, you know, the truth. 5 through 7, you know, uh, he's, he's observing things that do not make sense, that sometimes he'll see this is just backwards. Um, I have seen slaves riding on horses and prince walking away like slaves on the land. 
And then to me, I feel like he changes, he says, and so, but these things, these things are the truth. There's nothing that can change these. Seven through nine is one of those that he who plays with fire gets burned. I feel like that's what he is saying in a lot of different ways. And he's kind of build, building that up. He who um, digs a pit may fall in it, a servant may bind who breaks through. He who quarries stones and be hurt by them, and split logs might be um, endangered by them as well. So I think it's that cultural proverb we say sometimes. Like I said, he who plays with fire gets burned. And so he said, yes, sometimes when you walk around the nation, you see things that do not make sense. Rulers making decisions. You've got people, high places being humbled, um, people like slaves being, you know, riding on the horses. These things might be backwards, but these who, who, you know, dabbles a little bit with something that's a little dangerous, eventually it will bite him. It will come to affect him. And so, and then verse 10, he transitions to this next thought that we're all very acquainted with, work smarter, not harder, right? It's that wisdom that goes into he who knows how to do the job the right way doesn't have to work as hard, just like in Ben's situation, not having that wisdom that pours into it that kind of unlocks, okay, I need a better tool or I need to sharpen this or whatever it may be. And so I think this is kind of that, not back and forth, but one side, it doesn't make sense, but these things will always make sense in that as well. And then, and then in verse 11, I thought this might be, to me, was the most interesting uh, passage, verse in this passage. The servant bites before being charmed. There's no profit for the charmer. The way I, I kind of saw it was a babbler who la- will lash out even when not provoked. Someone who is ready, who, someone who is loose with their mouth, or someone who is ready to, to lash out like that, does not have to be poked and prodded to, to do damage. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. If we, spend t- if we spend our time with people who have the tendency to, to babble, to go on, to lash out against other people, then eventually we're going to get bit. It may not be that we provoke them at all, but it might be that when they're around somebody else, that's where the biting happens. And so I think this is another, another one of these, uh, dare I say, cautionary tales. Uh, truths of the Bible that just provide caution to our life. You know, I was uh, also intrigued by the... Uh, uh, reference to the sharpening of the axe situation here it made me think of uh, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another so what really stood out to me with the this whole um, the iron is blunt analogy of and sharpening the edge is that we have a responsibility of preparation that we have to equip ourselves that we have to um, take the time to um, prepare our tools, if you will. And I thought of that in the context of um, uh, facing temptation, for instance. We need to, to we, in order to be effective at resisting temptation, don't we need to prepare ourselves in advance like you would prepare an axe before you chopped wood? And so I think about the, the, how Jesus handled temptation. He, he had prepped himself to face those temptations by familiarizing himself with Scripture, and that was his, his weapon, if you will. He had sharpened his axe before he entered the wilderness by, by acquainting himself with Scripture so that he had a defense against it. I think about prayer in the same vein, uh, preparing ourselves, prepping ourselves, equipping ourselves in advance through prayer and also through fellowship. Uh, when you think about that Proverbs 27, 17, 27 verse 17 passage that talks about one man sharpening another, the, the idea there can be found also in the New Testament of encouraging one another daily. The idea that, that, that we prepare ourselves, we equip ourselves uh, for what we have to face uh, through our fellowship and through our, our, our bond as Christians. And so one takeaway for me for, from verse 10 is the fact that, that we all have to be uh, doing the prep work so that we can stand in the face of, whether in the face of temptation or trials or difficult days or just, in the, just with the concept of maturing our faith, it necessitates us doing preparatory work. 
And, and so that's one thing that stood out to me from, from verse 10 in this analogy of, of sharpening the edge of an, an axe or something like that. Mingu, you have any thoughts? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't have any spe- I mean, anything to talk about a uh, specific verse, but uh, it constantly comes to my mind that, um, uh, I mean, probably I have to be very careful about saying this because I'm not saying that this book is not inspired or this book, these words are not word of God. Uh, this word, I mean, even I don't say, I'm not saying that these words are not uh, as worth as the New Testament. But what I'm trying to say is that each book of the Bible and each portion of the scripture works in a different way and all serves the one goal uh, for uh, the reader and the believer to get the whole picture and whole uh, wisdom and gospel. And what is very interesting uh, as I study this book is that this book works very for a specific uh, purpose to tell the readers the need of knowing the wisdom. So that's what I was trying to say. You know, this book will give us the ultimate wisdom, fear God and keep his commandments at the end of the book. But uh, to reach that point, at this point, this book is saying that we have to have wisdom. We have to pursue wisdom. And so uh, this section especially gives us the uh, kind of description of uh, description of how human life goes under under the earth. I mean, under the sun. So uh, I think uh, the inspiration could give the this uh, one of the best. I mean, uh, this description of life, human life, and the accurate uh, description of the human life, as we read that, it uh, gives us the feeling that necessitates us the, you know, uh, the, the wisdom. So uh, I don't know I'm, I'm making sense, but you know, <laughs> it is hard to <laughs> explain. All right, for the sake of time, we were going to split up this last half into two sections, but I'm just going to read the entirety of it, and uh, starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll, uh, we'll examine it. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what this, excuse me, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. There are a couple things that stood out to me in this section, but uh, one of the, the first thing that catches my eye is verse 12. The word, words of a wise man's mouth win him favor but the lips of a fool consume him. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19, where it says, When the words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I think it's important for us to realize that our words matter, and one of the reasons our words matter is because they affect our salvation. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, Jesus said, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Sometimes we don't process just how big of an impact what we say can have on our eternal salvation. And we shouldn't necessarily limit it to what we say. It could include what we write or text or post. Our words matter a great deal. And so we need to be cognizant of everything we communicate because we'll give an account for every careless word one day. And so I think it's worth noting here that Solomon is saying, uh, be wise with your words because they win you favor. They, they, they are beneficial to you. And if you are foolish with your words, they will consume you. They will have a negative effect on you. And so that's, that's the first thing that really stands out to me in this last section. Let me uh, turn it over and let somebody else jump in. Um, I think the uh, interesting verse is uh, the verse 19 and the last sentence, money answers everything. I mean, that, <laughs> that phrase makes me think about the things that I was talking about this chapter. That is not the, I mean, that is not the truth that God wants to teach us. But it is exact description of human life goals. Money answers everything. But, but God wants us to pursue money because money answers everything. But what uh, Solomon, the author of this book, wants to understand is that even though the human life works like this, money answers everything, but we have to know the better and we have no better than that. We have to understand, uh, first we have to understand how life goes, but we should not stop there, but we should pursue higher things than that, than how life goes. So that's what I'm, I was tr trying to say. So Solomon gives us, I mean Solomon here, and also uh, some in the Proverbs, in some portion of the book of Proverbs gives us the description of, human, I mean, of how human life goes. But we should be very careful as we read those things, those scriptures, that it is the truth. For example, you know, bribe, uh, uh, one of the uh, verses of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says that bribes helps the person uh, to to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, things like that. I'm paraphrasing, but you know God's word would not uh, tell us to give bribe, but it is a description of human life. So we have to know that, and we have to know better than that, and the, we have to know the higher wisdom based on the description of the human life. So, um, so constantly I see that uh, kind of uh, levels, uh, different levels uh, in this section too. So uh, what I'm trying to say is that we should pursue the ultimate wisdom that saves us but we should not, and also we should not mistake uh, to take uh, some you know, inspired description of human lives as the ultimate wisdom. My takeaway was primarily from verse 12. Uh, Kyle mentioned this already, but I believe it goes in hand with what happened in the former chapter, in chapter 9 and verse 17, we talked about this last week, it says, Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. 
Now let's go back to chapter 10 and verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool shall swallow him up. This was very interesting to me because I think we've all seen this happen before. We've all seen this happen in our life where someone who you knew was wiser, someone who you knew had been through it, been there, done that, maybe had a lot more knowledge on the matter, had a lot more wisdom on the matter, were completely shut down by someone who may have been a little bit louder, someone who maybe had more words to say or spoke more eloquently or were maybe more persuasive or more convincing. And uh, so automatically the person who had fewer words to say was automatically perceived as less than. But I think that the proverb here in a true statement has never been said more than this. That just because they have more words to say, they are more persuasive, they are more eloquent, they are better at speaking, doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean that they are wiser than the person who has just been, you know, overtaken by this shouter. As the former chapter said, the shout of a person who's shouting for fools, right? We should listen to the words of the wise instead of those people, but sometimes, even when we try to listen to the words of the wise, all we hear is the words of the fool. And it's the same in our everyday conversations as it is on social media. Just because you post more than anyone else in the world doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean if you have 5,000 comments, but the whole thing was discord, that doesn't mean that that was a successful venture. And I think we have to understand, sometimes we need to look and listen for those words of wisdom instead of the words of the many. Because oftentimes that is the fool in the situation. Oftentimes, that's the person who has no ability to control their tongue, as verse 11 was talking about. Oftentimes, it's the person who has no business speaking that is swallowing up the words of the wise. And I think we have to be careful not to become that ourselves. You know, we see people on TV all the time that sound like they know what they're talking about. Televangelists, Many other areas of life, they, if you, they will hook you from the first 30 seconds. But you know that no matter for how many words they might say, it's all empty. You know, you can say a lot without saying anything. How true is that? Just because you're saying a lot of words, that's why Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you think you'll be heard for your many words, but your heart's not right. And so when we think about ourselves, are we simply just trying to out-scream the other person? Are we simply just trying to swallow up someone who has a different opinion than us? Because I don't think that makes us wise. I think that might, in some cases, make us fools. And I think that's what the text is saying to us tonight. And then, and then secondly, with... What Mingi was talking about, money answers everything. I think Solomon would be the first one to say that this is a truth under the sun, right? Because the whole book has been about him acquiring all the things that he acquired in his life, and yet at the end it was vanity. He had more money than anyone in the whole world. And yet he found that it was void and without meaning. And then lastly, verse 20 is important for us tonight. It says, do not curse the king. Even in your thought, do not curse the rich, even in your bedroom, for a bird of the air may carry your voice, and a bird in flight may tell the matter. Now, is this saying that a bird is just going to hear what you got to say and then go to the next town and say, Did you hear what Ben had to say? Mm. No, it's not saying a bird. It's not, it's not saying a bird is literally going to do that. But you ever heard the phrase, a little birdie was talking? someone who is gossiping, someone who is not looking out for your best interest, you should not put yourself in a situation where you have to depend on other people not saying to others what you've just said. 
If you're talking behind someone's back, you're putting yourself in their you know, hands as to whether they're going to go out and ruin you or not. Instead, don't even say anything that could be taken the wrong way. Keep yourself from saying anything that someone could cause to ruin you. To allow that to be a fly in the ointment, to go back to verse 1 of our text tonight. And especially tonight as we look at the first part of this verse. Do not curse the king. Someone says, well, who cares if I curse the king? Who cares if I go after this politician? I don't know him. He don't know me. I'll never see him in my life. I'll never interact with him. Why can't I say what i got to say? That's not how a Christian thinks. That's not how followers of God think. We have to realize that when we speak ill of each other or speak ill of the lost, we're acting as if we weren't in their shoes one time. We're acting as if we were never lost. I can't believe they would have that stance on fill in the blank. Well, wouldn't you have that same stance if you hadn't been taught differently? If you hadn't been shown the right way? I think we have to have a lot more patience for people and understand that God loves that person. God wants that person even when we don't think there's any chance for any type of spiritual renewal with that person. God wants that person. But sometimes we speak as if He doesn't. We speak as if on His behalf we know God doesn't want that person. And when we get in that attitude, we are wrong. And we deserve to be called out for it. And so think about this as we go throughout the next few months and years about our words. Because Christians are supposed to be those who have bridled their tongues. And James said it best, I believe, when he said, if a man cannot bridle his tongue, his religion is useless. Keep that in mind. I keep that in mind constantly. I do not succeed as much as I'd like to. But it's something for us to talk about tonight. A few quick points uh, before we wrap it up tonight. Uh, I like the sarcasm I feel like uh, Solomon uses in verse 15. The tool of the fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. Verses 12 through 14 says, This man spends so much time convincing everybody else that he knows what is right. He knows where to go. He knows, every, you know, he knows that he has all the answers. He starts with folly. It ends with wickedness. He multiplies his words in the middle. He spends so much time convincing everybody he knows what to, what to do. But at the end of the day, he doesn't even know that. He doesn't even know how to go home. He doesn't even know how to go to the city. So I thought that, that sarcasm to what, what I picked up with sarcasm was kind of comical. And in verse 16, another thing, uh, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad. I'm reminded of his, Solomon's own prayer in 1 uh, first Kings chapter 3, verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you have made me your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. Solomon is saying, you know, what a pity when a kingdom is led by an immature or a young man. Well, he would know that because he was maybe that immature young man when he had to leave the kingdom. And so maybe in his uh, gaining and losing some wisdom in his lifetime, as we see his kind of turned down to, to sinful nature, I, I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Verse 18, and I'll, and I'll try to keep this pretty quick. I know we need to go. Uh, verse 18, we can either take that as the fall of a great nation or the fall of any, any, anything that has leaders, a house, a home, your job, whatever it may be, through indolence or laziness, some translations might read, the rafters sag and, the, and through slackness the house leaks. Why does a nation fall? Why does a home fall to pieces? We find out verses 19, in verse 19 because of foolishness, selfishness, and a concern only for one's own pleasure and good. I think that's why Solomon makes this statement in verse 19. Men who prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine 
and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything, when that is our mindset, laziness is set in. And the nation or the home, whatever you're leading, if that's your mindset, money can fix everything, let's just enjoy what we have, let's spend our time celebrating all what we've got, it's going to fall in demise. And then to echo what Ben said in verse 20, we cannot stress this enough. I don't think it's a coincidence that we keep hitting this same passage over and over again at the same time in our nation where it might be easy to curse the one in charge. Well, you say, Jay, it's not fair because Solomon was the one in charge, right? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little ripe when Solomon the king is saying, don't curse the king, right? I'd like to turn our attention to Acts chapter 23. We're going to very quickly read 2 through 5 and we'll be done. The high priest and Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then, so after the striking, Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try, to try me according to the law? And in violation of the law, order me to be struck. But the bystanders say, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Talk about a bad man. Ananias, a ruler standing in front of Paul, ordering him to be struck. And Paul lashes right back out saying, who are you to judge me? And so you say, Jay, you know, I don't know if I, I can curse the king if he's doing wrong, sinful things, right? I can curse the king because it's obvious how bad of a person he is, right? Well, Paul stopped himself and he said, I shouldn't have done that. I wasn't aware he was a high priest. Do not curse the king. And I think it's funny. He says, because if you do, a small little bird may pass that along. You know, I don't think we're having the problem here. Sometimes we saying it in secret. We've passed telling it to little birds. We're, we're shouting it on the mountaintop on our social media accounts. And as we talk to people left and right, the, the bird we're, we're worried about is Twitter, right? But how, I don't know how much clearer Scripture has to be that as Christians, it's not wise to curse those above us. Even if we know for a fact they're in the wrong, and not only are they maybe, well, I don't agree with that opinion. No, they're morally terrible people, possibly. That's, what, that's who Paul's standing in front of. And still not the right thing to curse those in private or in public. Amen. Well, thank you for your attention tonight as we conclude chapter 10. Next week, our intention will be to cover chapter 11. And we hope you'll join us again. Let us close out tonight with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are humbled before